I don't know why I'm frightened. Hi there. I know my way around here. Let's take a trip down memory lane. The cardboard trees, the painted seas, the sound here. Yes, Back to a time when VHS players roamed the earth, the O.J. Simpson trial captivated the country, and the summer bop was the Macarena. Twenty-five years ago, I sat in front of the family living room TV. We only had one TV in color. The other one in the guest room was black and white. I was watching the 49th Tony Awards on VHS. Again, for maybe the 49th time. The League of American Theaters and Producers and the American Theater Wing present the 1995 Tony Awards with special guest appearances by... My 16-year-old self had become obsessed with American premiere cast recording of the Angeloid Weber mega musical Sunset Boulevard. Now, the 95 Tony Awards weren't exactly a stellar season. In fact, there were only two Best Musical nominees, Sunset and Smokey Joe's Cafe. No one seriously thought that Smokey Joe's had a fair shot. I mean, the awards ceremony that year was in the Sunset Boulevard mansion on the Minskoff stage. Good evening, and welcome to Norma Desmond's enormously wonderful living room on Sunset Boulevard. Now, I'm very proud to introduce my co-hosts, for this evening's gala presentation of the 1995 Tony Awards, Mr. Gregory Hines and Mr. Nathan Lane. Like we were going to award anyone but Sunset as guests in Norma Desmond's living room? Anyway, there I was, transfixed in front of the family room TV, watching Glenn schmacked her big second act number as if we never said goodbye. Now this was a broad performance. Her makeup more kabuki-like than it was in the press photos I'd meticulously studied as if that were even possible. Knowing I had the house to myself, a rarity back then, I decided to join Glenn in her mugging. Right at the apex of the number, I spun around as I'd been practicing for months, collecting my composure and sputtering out the phrase, the whispered conversation. Whispered conversation. And then I see it. My dad, standing in the living room entryway, staring at me, hands on his hips, fully drenched sweat bed on his head. His morning jog apparently didn't last as long as I'd planned. He gave me a slow, confused look up and down. My heart stopped. Hey, you have a good voice, he said. And he went off to complete his morning workout as I sheepishly turned off the TV. Cut to a few months later. My annual summer Toronto theater trip, the Canadian premiere of Sunset Boulevard starring Diane Carroll. It had just opened. Given my obsession with the show, my mom knew what to do. Third row balcony, baby. I remember when she told me she got the tickets. She was dropping me off at my weekly Boy Scout meeting. I ran inside, giddy as all get out, telling my troop about the upcoming date with Diane. You can imagine how that went. After what seemed like eons, we're finally in Toronto, heading on a train to a district called North York. As we entered the Ford Center for the Performing Arts, I darted up the stairs to the balcony. No, hun, that's not our entrance, my mom yelled up at me. She proceeded to enter the main floor and marched up to the front of the auditorium as I trailed behind. What are you doing? I asked. Finding our seats, she coyly replied. Yes, my mother had kept it a secret that we had front row center seats. 
And that's when I had a two and a half hour masterclass on what a star performance looks like from Miss Diane Carroll. Now, let's skip 25 years to March 6, 2020, one week before the world shuts down. I'm at the Columbia University Rare Books and Manuscripts Library, surrounded by a half-dozen scrapbooks hand-curated by Patti Lapone, the world premiere Norma Desmond. Now, these scrapbooks chronicle one of the most delicious Broadway scandals in decades, Patti's unceremonious ousting and reprising the role on Broadway in favor of Glenn Close, handwritten letters from fans, stagehands, peers, and the man himself, Angeloid Weber, all talking her off the ledge. Or in the case of Angeloid Weber, a letter offering Patti a chance to replace Glenn Close in the L.A. production. The audacity. But more to come on this. Listen. The musical Sunset Boulevard has been my milestone musical. I mean, Sunset Boulevard the musical was the search term I typed into Alta Vista when I got on the internet for the very first time. To me, it's more than just a show. It's a constant. A connection point. A place I turn to for comfort, and these days, we need a lot of comfort. And I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, your story is similar to mine. You love the show for reasons you cannot entirely explain. You likely know all the dirty backstage dealings that made Sunset not only a favorite for theater gays, but for the press. I'm Broadway Bob, and I invite you to join me on this quest as I deep dive into the drama that is Sunset Boulevard, the musical. Episode 1, Setting the Stage. Billy Wilder may be synonymous with American film, but he was actually born in Austria. As a boy growing up in Berlin in the 1920s, he was fascinated by the American culture as depicted by Hollywood. The excess, the glamour, the leading ladies. With the rise of the Nazi party, he fled Germany for Paris in the early 1930s, eventually moving to Hollywood following some recognition for his early films in Germany and France. Young Wilder's transition to America was not easy. He bounced from project to project with little pay, learning English on the job. His threadbare life at this stage was very much the inspiration for his sunset alter ego, Joe Gillis. Now, Wilder is known for pioneering film noir, a style of film steeped in cynicism and dark humor, and usually features a crime of passion delivered by a femme fatale. But upon reading interviews with him, Wilder very much did not want to be put into a box. He's quick to point out that he also made some of the greatest comedies of our time, such as Some Like It Hot and The Apartment. But one can't deny that his work in 1944's Double Indemnity isn't something truly special. Many cite this film, which starred Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, as the foundation for the film noir genre as we know and love it. And the composition of the film, the pace, the tone, the delivery by the actors, the plot told in flashback, is very much a precursor to Sunset Boulevard. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? Well, It's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. 
Double Indemnity follows an insurance salesman played by McMurray and a provocative housewife, Stanwyck, who wishes her husband dead. While this film was nominated for seven Oscars, it won none. However, it gave Wilder the creds to take on a topic he'd been thinking about since his days as a boy in Berlin. You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. <laughs> the poor dope. He always wanted a pool. While now an adult, Wilder's boyhood fascination with America's obsession with fame was very much still alive. He wondered about those whose entire identity was founded on their manufactured fame, only to have that identity ripped out from under them when the public tastes moved on. He marveled at the huge mansions on the Sunset Strip, mansions built by the early Hollywood machine during the silent film era. What ghosts live in there now, haunting the residents whose industry cast them aside when talkies took over? Working with longtime collaborator Charles Beckett, Wilder developed the script for Sunset. Apparently, in early versions, it was a deeply satiric comedy designed for Mae West. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. When she declined, they retooled the script to be more sardonic and approached Greta Garbo, Norma Shearer, and Mary Pickford. All three declined. They found the role of Norma Desmond distasteful. I mean, who wants to be seen as a has-been actress falling for a younger man? At a loss, Wilder approached filmmaker George Cukor for advice, and he recommended Gloria Swanson. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Now, at this point in her career, Swanson was the anti-Norma Desmond. While similar to Norma in that she got her start in silent films, she had a very clear view of her career opportunities as a middle-aged actress. She'd moved to New York to do radio and TV, and she closed the Hollywood chapter of her life. But Wilder's pitch intrigued her. She was ready to come back to the screen, and she wanted that Hollywood paycheck. But then they asked for a screen test. In full Norma fashion, Swanson told the producers to simply watch one of her 20 films she made for Paramount in the past. Kukor talked her off the ledge, and she ultimately did the screen test and got the contract and the paycheck. Oh, there was also some drama surrounding the casting of William Hurt, but for me, Sunset has always been about Norma, so we're going to focus on that for this podcast, okay? Sunset Boulevard premiered on August 10th, 1950. Critical reception was strong, and the movie broke box office records. Many praise Swanson's performance, which is one of the best in modern cinema. I personally think it's such a great performance because it's clear she full-out owns and understands Norma Desmond. Swanson has said that Wilder often turned to her during filming for direction on the role, given she virtually lived Norma's experience. Norma Desmond as a delirious co-creation by Swanson and Wilder. Also praised was the look of the film. Wilder leaned heavily on his trusted cameraman Johnny Seitz to capture those iconic, moody settings. And then there was Franz Waxman's score, a masterwork of blending various sounds from movies of the day, along with a mad tango motif for Norma. However, not everyone loved it. Louis B. Mayer famously called Wilder a bastard, followed with, You have disgraced the industry that made you and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. You have to admit, Wilder was kind of a rebel. 
Sunset won three Oscars and is regarded as one of the best films ever made. And then Angelo Weber made it into a musical. <laughs> Wait, not so fast. We have about 40 years between the movie and Angelo Weber's rendition. There have been other attempts. With its grand themes and a starring vehicle for an actress of a certain age, it's no surprise that the property has been explored by others to turn into song. First, there was the musical adaptation by Gloria Swanson herself. Yes, in a darkly ironic twist, Swanson latched onto her career high as Norma and did not let go. A few years following the film's release, Swanson recruited songwriters Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley to pen some musical numbers for a musical adaptation called Boulevard. Yes, that's Boulevard with an exclamation point. This musical never made it past a scratchy demo recording, which you can find online. They all agreed the talk's a thing they could not do without. So they opened up their big mouths and look what came out. But you've got to have talk, talk, talk. Chatter, chatter, chatter. Talk, talk, talk. Shrill, incessant patter. Loud, distracting, strident, and rough. But pantomime acting isn't enough. No. No, talk, talk, talk. This is what the choice is. Talk, talk, talk. That was talk, 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 which is when Joe Gillis and Norma argue in counterpoint about, well, the talkies. Other song titles included Hand to the Glands and Untitled Love Story. Now, a big change in this adaptation was Swanson's desire to give the show a happy ending. In her version, Norma isn't actually rich. She fakes it all and sells her stuff to win over Joe. And she ultimately lets Joe run off with Betty Schaefer, enabling Norma to become the hero. <laughs> yes, the only death in this version was Wilder's original vision. Not surprisingly, Swanson failed to get Paramount to release the rights to her. However, according to some, the real reason the show floundered was due to Swanson becoming romantically entangled with her lyricist, Richard Stapley. An actress penning her return and falling in love with her collaborator? Sounds familiar? Anyway, in 1994, composer Dixon Hughes adapted his score into a new show called Swanson on Sunset, which told the daffy story of the musical's creation with Swanson. It played for six weeks at the Hollywood Roosevelt Cinegrill. If anyone has seen this, I would love to speak with you. Then along came Sondheim. Yes. Stephen Sondheim. According to Sondheim himself, back in the early 60s, he'd been toying with the adaptation of the movie for the stage. While some articles indicate this was to star Jeanette MacDonald, I attended a talk with Sondheim and he mentioned that he wanted Angela Lansbury to play the role of Norman Desmond. So Sondheim's developing the show, and he meets Wilder at a cocktail party. He tells him of his idea. Wilder told him it couldn't be done as a musical. It needed to be an opera, he said. After all, it's about a dethroned queen. Sondheim agreed and abandoned his efforts. But could we all pause for a moment and imagine a Stephen Sondheim sunset starring Angela Lansbury? Thank you. Moving on. So, Swanson and Sondheim are out. Cut to 1970. A young Angela Weber is seeing Wilder's masterpiece for the first time, and an idea hits him. An idea 20 years in the making. And in realizing this dream, he leaves behind a wake that includes lawsuits, a broken lamp, a new swimming pool, and the end of the British invasion of mega musicals as we know it. All that and more coming up on The Sunset Project. 